Lebanon is a small country on the eastern edge of the Mediterranean Sea. Its strongest political and military faction is Hezbollah, a terrorist organization loyal to the supreme leader of the Islamic Republic of Iran. Lebanon also is on the edge of economic collapse and perhaps war with Israel as well. And oh yes, it's been hard hit by the coronavirus pandemic. I'm Cliff May. Joining me to discuss Lebanon's precarious state are James Rickards, an eminent writer on economics and geopolitics, who serves on the Board of Advisors for FDD's Center on Economic and Financial Power, and Tony Bedron, a research fellow at FDD, who was born and raised in Lebanon and for years has studied and written about the Levant. We're pleased you're with us too, here on Foreign Policy. has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the we game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence, that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. I am fearful for what happens to Turkey now if you thought that it was dangerous that a coup might have toppled this democracy, think about what this very autocratic man might do. Tony, let me let me ask you to provide a, a bit of background and, and context to get us started. I, I suspect that many people, if they think of Lebanon at all, have a somewhat romantic and, and, and maybe dated view. Beirut is the Paris of the Middle East and an Arab land, but with glamorous nightclubs, a diverse country of sophisticated Muslims and Christians and others coexisting. That's, that's not quite the reality, is it? Right. Uh, this is a, a genius brand, basically, that the Lebanese from the early years of its founding have uh, constructed and sold uh, both to themselves and to the world to kind of justify why this tiny, in many ways, insignificant country should uh, be of interest to anyone. You know, for the longest time, it served them well in terms of tourism and uh, and banking and so on. But then it quickly became a problem for their own self-delusion on the one hand, but, but also in terms of how it has impacted because this brand has a strong purchase on, um, on uh, sort of in, in Western um, uh, p- policymaking circles. And, and that has not done Lebanon any good, uh, meaning the people of Lebanon, because it has perpetuated the delusion, which came crashing down last year. So just to give you an example, for instance, the Lebanese pound, the local currency, uh, had crashed uh, during the years of the civil war. And then after the war, it was pegged artificially to the dollar at a fixed exchange rate, which has continued to this day until it crashed uh, last year, rather. And uh, this artificial sort of uh, peg and, and, and value for their currency allowed the Lebanese uh, to live in a particular way and continue to promulgate this image of themselves to the world, which was completely artificial. And, it, and I'm, as I'm sure uh, Jim is going to get into much more detail, uh, sort of the, the entire sort of system of the country, the banks, 
the political elite, everyone fed into this scheme, which now the Lebanese people are paying for primarily um, uh, with, with having lost their savings and now are living in abject poverty as a result. But the reason why this is the case is because Lebanon itself is an artificial state. It has all the trappings of what we consider to be a state when we talk about state in the Western sense. Uh, you know, buildings where government officials meet, uh, nomenclature, you know, prime minister, president, speaker of parliament, all of these things. But none of these things are actually real in Lebanon. These things, are, their names are there, but what they correspond to is something completely different. So Lebanon's reality, as it has sold itself to the world and has, unfortunately, as a lot of policymakers in the United States and in Europe have come to, to sort of internalize, is really a fiction. Uh, all right. Now that we have this broad picture, Jim, you've done a, a very deep research dive into Lebanon's economy, and you've written a detailed report for FDD. It's it's much worse than, than I think most people uh, have understood. Is that correct? That's correct, Cliff. And I, I just wanted to kind of amplify what uh, Tony said. It's a country in a legal sense. It's a member of the IMF. It's a member of the United Nations and has all the accoutrement that Tony described. But, uh, but it's not a country in the civic sense, in the social sense. It's just a place where a lot of different factions. And we've, you know, Tony talked about the religious um, divisions or the religious factions, and he's absolutely right. But there are also tribal factions, geographic factions, and some of them overlap. It is, um, is quite the uh, kind of checkerboard, uh, but even a lot, a lot more complicated than that. But the point is, um, my expertise is, you know, financial and financial distress and financial crises. And that's the perspective that I brought to the uh, report you're describing. We did do a very, uh, very deep dive, but the two are related. In other words, when you say, okay, you're in financial distress, you try to assess that. And then you say, well, how do you, how do you solve it? What's the, what's the playbook for rescue? And there is a playbook, but when you bring the playbook to Lebanon, whether you're the IMF or whether you're a group of multilateral lenders, you know, et cetera, you bring this playbook to Lebanon, it doesn't work because the first thing you have to do is say, well, what's this? What's the size of the lawsuit? What are we talking about here, guys? What's the, what's the damage? The government cannot give a straight answer. Uh, we have, we have an estimate in our report. The IMF has a private estimate. They're actually, interestingly, they're, they're quite close, but the government's estimate is 30% lower than either the FDD report or the IMF. The government, uh, again, I'm using estimate the word, of what, Jim? Let me just, I want to be clear. The estimate, the government estimate of, of the total losses, total loss. Okay. Total, no, how much, how much money do we need to bail out this country or rescue this country? That's the first question you ask. And the answer is, um, you know, the, the IMF's around 100 billion. Our report comes in in the mid 90s, 93 to 96 billion, depending on, um, you know, a couple of assumptions about the currency. But the government is saying 67 billion. So, first of all, you can't get a straight answer on that. Secondly, uh, and again, I'm using the word government in quotation marks. It's not quite clear what we mean by that in the case of Lebanon, but there's no transparency. The IMF said, well, well okay, let us look at the books, you know, let us do a, kind of audit. We, we have experts who can do this. The government said no. Um, there are factions who are opposed to that. This is a can of worms. The minute you open it, and we kind of have opened it in our research, uh, you discover so much more than just the losses. You discover the corruption, the terrorist finance, uh, the illegal rackets, the, the siphoning off of hard currency, et cetera. So a mess is an understatement, but you can't 
even conduct a rescue unless you can get these basic things in place. And in the case of Lebanon, they're not in place. I want to come back to that, but I'd like you to just elaborate a little bit more. How did Lebanon get to the sorry state it's currently in? Corruption or greed. You know, early in my career, I, uh, my area was uh, Asia, Africa, a you know, pretty big piece of real estate. I was the number two guy because I was the new guy. So my boss used to go to you know, Sydney, uh, Singapore, and Tokyo. And I used to get the Congo and uh, you know, all the interesting places. So I'm not unacquainted with uh, corrupt, uh, broken down governments. But usually it's the case that you have you know, everyday people who suffer the most. And then there's an elite crowd around a, a leader, some kind of strong man, and, uh, and they rip the place off. But in Lebanon, you've got multiple warlords, multiple centers of uh, theft and corruption. So it's, it, you can say, well, there's a corrupt elite. Yeah, but there's sort of four or five separate corrupt elites who are stealing from each other. You pretty quickly see how impossible it will be to bail it out. Now, in the period following the Civil War in the 1990s, you saw the rise of Hezbollah, which is, was a huge problem. But uh, Lebanese society, and not really civil society, there, there was some uh, cooperation. There was some growth. There was some you know, new real estate development, good economic growth. Lots of problems built in. Uh, the biggest one, I would say, is that Lebanon never, they never developed an export sector. In the 2000s, uh, it, it started to get worse. Hezbollah became a state within a state. I think that's a good way to describe it. Think of Hezbollah as a virus. And what does the virus do? It replicates itself and eventually takes over the entire system and the system dies. That's what has happened. The U.S. has done a pr- very good job, not perfect, but a pretty good job of looking at the dollar system imposing sanctions, freezing accounts, banishing certain bad actors from the dollar payment system, and in cooperation with our allies, even banishing them from SWIFT, which is the international payment system if you're moving euros or yen or, or other currencies. So if you're Hezbollah and you're bringing in, you know, estimates vary, but how do you turn that into dollars? That's, that's a big deal. You've got to get to dollars. And that means you have to interact with the U.S. dollar payment system and legitimate U.S. banks. The money changers had a legitimate business side by side with the, uh, with, with the corrupt business. So now Hezbollah goes to the money changers. The money changers go to the banks. The banks turn a blind eye because uh, the money changers have some legitimate business, but there's a lot of illegal money coming in. Then they make money off of that. And then the most corrupt actor of all is arguably the central bank, which did not perform a regulatory function not only tolerated the corruption on the part of the commercial banks, but, but amplified it. All of a sudden, this virus of Hezbollah finance and hard, hard currency money laundering infected the entire banking system. It's worse than what I would call a normal financial crisis, if there is such a thing, in two respects. Number one, there's no single party you can negotiate it with. Even if you, had, you want to enter into a good faith negotiation, you really want to help, you don't know who to call because there are multiple centers of power and none speak for the country, number one. Number two, the country is completely broke. Usually, you know, it's like, okay, your, your, your liabilities exceed your assets, you're broke, but you have some assets. There's, there's a little sliver of something there, maybe 10 cents, 20 cents on the dollar, but it gives you, a, it's like a brick foundation and you can build a house. In Lebanon, the foundation is gone. There is no money, no hard currency in this entire system. So you're totally broke, nothing to build on, and no one to talk to. That's Lebanon. Tony, I want you to kind of address the same question, and because you've been following Lebanon for your entire life, basically. Just talk about how it descended into the, the situation it, it now finds itself in, this, 
the situation of imminent collapse and, and, and other things as well, which we'll get, we'll get to. What Jim talked about, uh, you know, the, the corruption, the rackets, the, the various warlords, uh, uh, you know, uh, doling out contracts through the quote-unquote state bodies and so on. All of this, this system, this is baked into what we call the Lebanese state, right? This is what, why it's, it's, it's such a strange place and not a state in the way we understand it. This is how it was founded. It was founded as a cartel of a handful of families, uh, each belonging to a sect or, you know, sometimes more than one per sect. And they divide or what they call share power through the trappings of uh, and the formal institutions of the quote unquote state. It's built on corruption. It is what the place is founded on. And it was during the 90s under the under the Syrian presence in Lebanon that you had the first Lebanese banking crisis or, or scandal, which was the ba- Bank Al-Madina at the time, which was a massive money laundering enterprise, which foreshadowed what ended up happening in the 2000s with Hezbollah on a much bigger scale. You know, the Lebanese talk and about, you know, how the money from the diaspora, the remittances help, you know, keep the, the, the country afloat. Well, I mean, that's nice. But the thing is, that pales in terms of the sums that Hezbollah was bringing into the country and then sinking into the real estate and the banking sector. And everyone understood that it was coming from illegitimate sources, starting with the head of the central bank. Once that money stopped, and it really starts to happen in 2011, which is when the United States busted one of the biggest money laundering operations in Lebanon through the Lebanese Canadian Bank, which was at the time to the tune of 200 million a month. After that uh, was busted and everything became much more on the radar screen of the United States Treasury, things started to go down. This is the, sort of the rise uh, after 2008, the rise of Hezbollah to, to the formal dominance of the state and, and the government. And that led to worsening relations with uh, Lebanon's enablers in the Gulf Arab states, for instance, who stopped putting money into Lebanon. And then the Syrian war, and then just the slide keeps going down, down until it basically crashes in 2019, once the money dried up. And, And like any good Ponzi scheme, once the inflow stops, the music stops. And that's kind of what happened. Currently, adding, uh, you might say, infection to injury is the fact that the pandemic has hit there, as almost everywhere else. As far as you can tell, how how severe is the is the coronavirus pandemic in Lebanon? It's not been so crazy. It's it's under control, generally speaking. I mean, assuming you believe the numbers, the official numbers that the government is giving. Although recently there's been an uptick in 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 cases and numbers, but what that actually means in terms of um, the stress on the health system uh, remains to be seen. But the, the, the impact, interestingly, uh, beyond obviously adding to the, to the depression of the, of the economy uh, in that everybody has had to shut down and, and so on and so forth. Uh, the other thing is it, that it has an impact on is sort of the politics of the place. Because you remember, uh, we had a, um, a podcast about Lebanon after the, the, the popular protests started last year. And 
there was a lot of people in the streets and you know there was a lot of hope uh, from Lebanese civil society that this is going to be a movement that's going to put pressure on the political cartel and the financial cartel in the country. The coronavirus came with the lockdowns and really did a solid to the political elite in that it forced people to stay home. And, uh, and it allowed the political elite to recapture the momentum and to dictate the pace of, uh, of the politics of the place, which is what we're seeing today. Um, I mean, of course, uh, there has been recurrent um, protests and people are still going to the streets from time to time and so on. But uh, that initial shock of um, mass protests uh, was, uh, was absorbed in large part thanks to the, to the coronavirus. One other factor, uh, one other stress on the country that we should at least mention, uh, the refugees coming in from Syria, which has been in a state of chaos, carnage, uh, probably more than 500,000 killed um, by the Assad regime, uh, probably over 5 million displaced, either refugees or internally displaced. Um, a lot of refugees coming in. I would imagine uh, they, are, they are being sequestered. The refugees, and I'm surprised that that the pandemic has not uh, run rampant through those kind of small, probably not terribly hygienic communities. Yeah, it's unclear really in terms of the the health factor uh, in those camps. Uh, but yes, there has not been any massive uh, outbreak. Uh, what's interesting, you know, there's a, there's a case today, you know, that the, that the Lebanese are making that you know they love to blame their problems on outsiders. This is a, a very Lebanese thing, and one of the victims of that are the refugees, of course. The thing with the refugees is that people have to remember that they're one of the the sources of external hard currency coming into the country because people give grants uh, and aid to the Lebanese government because it's hosting. Uh, refugees. So one of the ways they have access to uh, foreign aid is because they're hosting the refugees. And then the refugees spend that money in the economy and work in the economy. So it's not really uh, just a, 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 a drain the way the Lebanese like to portray it. The idea of foreign workers in Lebanon is a big thing in, uh, in, the, in the country today. Um, that gets conflated with the Syrian refugees, although what it's really about more is um, Filipino and African uh, workers uh, who have been given job, you know, menial jobs, like either as domestic help or as a sort of uh, sanitary or garbage collector or, or uh, stuff like that. But now the, pe the people who used to be able to pay them no longer can pay them anymore. And these, and these people now are either you know, clamoring to go back to their, to their countries, or some of them are desperate enough, like we've seen with some Sudanese who are trying to cross the border into Israel just to get out. And Jim, it used to be um, that Lebanon was in part uh, held up by its diaspora because so many Lebanese have left in established communities all over the world. I, mean, I lived in Africa for a number of years. There are always Lebanese merchants, Lebanese communities. But these, this diaspora would send money back into Lebanon on a regular basis. And I think I'm right that it was an important part of the economy. Of course, that's harder too, and given all the things going on in the world right now. Well, that's exactly right, Cliff. And you have to combine the diaspora capital inflows flowing into Lebanon 
with the uh, idea of the Ponzi that, that Tony mentioned. And, you know, the word Ponzi gets thrown around, every fraud's a Ponzi. That's not exactly right. Uh, but a Ponzi is fairly simple. A Ponzi can continue indefinitely, provided the new inflows are greater than the outflows. Now, if you did an audit of balance sheet, it would be a negative net worth. It would, it would be clearly be a fraud. But un unless the depositors or the investors or the people who, who participate in the Ponzi unknowingly, unless they want their money back, it only takes a trickle of new money to pay off the occasional redemption, the occasional person who wants to leave and maintain the facade of the whole thing. You know, no biggest one in history, maybe outside of Lebanon was, of course, Bernie Madoff. Uh, and he said he had you know, tens of billions. He didn't, but his investors were not asking for their money back. So he just needed enough new investors to pay off the uh, you know, redemption request and they could keep going. Same thing with Lebanon. Uh, Lebanon has been insolvent for a long time, but there was enough hard, uh, hard currency coming in from the diaspora. And uh, they tended to be oil workers. You write about Ghana, um, UAE. Uh, they were uh, yeah, either merchants and, and traders and had other uh, professions, but a lot of them worked in the oil industry. And the downturn really started in 2014 when the price of oil collapsed. Uh, and all of a sudden, uh, those workers were being laid off. Those workers were being sent home. So that was the beginning of a drying up of the, of the diaspora remittances. Um, it, it got a lot worse. I mean, they're, they're basically gone today. There, there aren't any. But they, that was the beginning of the unraveling of the Ponzi, independent of any other problems that Lebanon had with Hezbollah, et cetera, because those people were all of a sudden out of work or getting taking wage cuts or coming back to Lebanon, and the money dried up, and at which point the banks could not meet their obligations to their depositors. So if you were a diaspora worker in the oil industry in Ghana and you sent dollars uh, back to Lebanon to, uh, you know, your mother or cousin or sister or whatever, um, she would put it in a Lebanese bank in a dollar deposit uh, and, and trust that the bank, that it was money good. The, the Lebanese commercial banks in Lebanon, in Lebanon, they accepted dollar deposits and they gave you credit. They said, we have a dollar account for you. Well, uh, of course, the dollars were gone. It was a Ponzi. That's all been revealed. There's, there are no new inflows to meet redemption. So what do they do? What, they do what you always do. You impose capital controls and freeze the accounts. So from uh, about um, October 2019 until um, you know, maybe around March this year, maybe a little bit earlier, maybe February, they said to the depositors, look, it's money good. We got the dollars, but you know, we just can't give it to you right now. Well, whenever a banker says, I can't give it to you right now, it means they don't have it. And that became clear. So the remittances dried up. The uh, hard currency dried up. The dollar depositors were told, yeah, I still have your dollars, but you, you can't get it right now, which means they don't have the dollars. Uh, and, and then it's got worse from there. Then the currency devalued. So even if you could get some you know, Lebanese pound allowance, some limited withdrawal ability in local currency, not dollars, but local currency, those became worthless because of hyperinflation. So, uh, and, and there's no way to make that up. I mean, even, even a huge new money uh, rescue, and, and it's very doubtful one will happen. I, you got to be clear about that. But even if you could get 10 to $20 billion from some combination of the IMF, and there's a Paris-based uh, multilateral lending group called Cedre, uh, maybe they'll put up 10. But even if you could get 10 and 10 or 15 and 10 or get to 20, $25 billion, the, the hole in, in the system is $100 billion. So you're not going to take the first 
25 billion you get and pay off bank depositors, you're going to use it for necessary imports of food and medicine. Uh, you're going to use it for infrastructure. You're going to use it to, uh, and, and that not, that's not to mention the fact that they've issued tens of billions of dollars of dollar denominated euro bonds. That's over and above the insolvency in the banking system. So, so at best, 10 billion or 20 billion would get you, buy you some time to make reforms, rebuild your economy, and gradually, very gradually, um, you know, restore some solvency and, and liquidity to the financial system. But it's not even close to what you need to pay off those dollar deposits. So treat the dollar deposits as either gone or at best local currency equivalents in a world where the local currency is devaluing by the day. You can barely keep up with it. And that, that money's gone. So, of course, the so diaspora remittances have dried up. Um, in, capital inflows have dried up. The system's totally insolvent, deeply insolvent, not, a, not by a little bit, by a lot. And uh, that money's gone. So as always, who, who loses in this? It's the everyday Lebanese or the, the diaspora who gave it to their relatives, uh, family members in Lebanon. That, that money is gone. One of the many crimes that associated with this is there is some information now emerging because there's some senior Lebanese officials who have kind of resigned in disgust. Maybe they were part of the system, but even, even they found it was too much to take. Uh, and they're starting to reveal some insider information and said, you know, oh, by the way, the elites were able to smuggle or, or get tens of billions of dollars out of the country in October. So before the, you know, the, the steel gate, the steel door shut tight and you can't get anything out, the insiders always know they would they would get phone calls. They would get they would say, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna lock down the banking system. You got 30 days to get your money out." And they did. It went to Switzerland. It went to Cyprus. It went where you would expect. But um, again, the elites act in their own interests. Everyday people were crushed. But now, uh, I think this is this is important, um, Cliff. Uh, apart from the fact that this may be on remedy for the reasons we talked about earlier, which is Lebanon doesn't meet any of the conditions you need. It may be a lot worse than that. Uh, this may be a humanitarian crisis where uh, you know, people in, in the refugee camps have been, have been suffering for decades, but now you're talking about what remains of a middle class, what, re, what re, remains of you know, merchants or workers who, um, you know, dollars or no dollars, they can't even get local currency, or if they can, it's not worth anything. The country can't import necessities. And you're talking about potential starvation and riots and a humanitarian crisis and a collapse of civil society over and above the financial crisis. So, Tony, given this situation, dire as we've described it, the last thing Lebanon needs is to find itself um, in, an, in, a, in another war. And yet that may not only be possible, it could be inevitable. And why don't you pick it up from there? Sure. So Hezbollah is at the heart of Lebanon's financial and economic troubles. It's also uh, the cause of uh, their biggest security uh, threat, importing and developing um, precision-guided missiles. So it's upgrading its, uh, its arsenal of rockets and missiles to make them more precise so that when they uh, target Israeli cities, uh, they hit within a much more, uh, much smaller radius of accuracy. So that that's that becomes very deadly, and that becomes a strategic threat for Israel. When you consider, when you combine that particular threat with the fact that the sort of the geographic span of this Iranian 
uh, ring of missile bases around Israel has been expanding over the, the last decade, which to include Syria. It used to be southern Lebanon and a sort of a minor threat from Gaza. Now you have Gaza, you have a much more advanced threat in Lebanon and a bigger geographic space in Syria and even maybe in Iraq, which is what um, the last decade of uh, uh, you know combined U.S. policy, and which has allowed Iran to to um, to expand throughout the Middle East, has resulted in basically just uh, uh, an increased threat. So that element, Israel has to deal with it uh, preemptively, as we've been seeing in Syria and in, in certain cases in Iraq, where Isra the Israeli Air Force. Uh, goes out and targets shipments and bases and facilities where these uh, missiles and, and, and strategic weapons are being stored or developed. And uh, it has, to this point, with one exception, uh, not uh, expanded this operation into Lebanon itself. The only, one, the only exception happened last, uh, uh, last August when there was some sort of a component of the uh, precision uh, project that sort of to help convert uh, dumb rockets into smart rockets uh, was targeted in the heart of the Beirut suburbs, the Hezbollah stronghold in, in, in Lebanon via a drone attack, which was widely understood to be an Israeli attack, and, and it destroyed that component. And that was the only time over the last decade that Israel has, uh, has targeted Lebanon uh, proper. The reason why is because they have a, sort of a rules of engagement with uh, Hezbollah and they understand that if they target in, in Hezbollah in Lebanon, Hezbollah would retaliate. And if, you, if Hezbollah retaliates against Israel, then the possibility of that escalating into a full-out war becomes higher. So they generally tended to avoid that. But now that the precision guided missile project is so ingrained in Lebanon, the likelihood or the necessity that Israel might have to go after these targets inside Lebanon you know, grows. And with it, the possibility uh, that uh, this sort of a pre this preemptive Israeli strike could lead to a, a larger uh, conflict. A couple of things that it's important that people understand is one, Hezbollah has a has military strength that exceeds that of the Lebanese armed forces. That they, they, they are stronger than the Lebanese armed forces, and the Lebanese armed forces, you may want to elaborate on this, Tony, um, are subservient essentially to Hezbollah. Secondly, the last time there was a conflict, it was between largely between Hezbollah and Israel. The missiles that Hezbollah had then were not these smart missiles you described. So to, a, to an extent, and you correct me if I'm wrong, the last conflict in 2006 was southern Lebanon, Hezbollah versus Israel. Um, the next conflict, because of where the missiles are being emplaced, cannot be, will not be described as a, a Hezbollah-Israel conflict. It'll be all the Lebanon will be targeted, including suburbs of Beirut, maybe even downtown of Beirut, if, if there is a, a serious conflict because Hezbollah has, has spreaded these missiles, including the smart ones, around. The Lebanese armed forces will not be able to restrain or do anything except perhaps help Hezbollah against Israel. And the other thing that I think I just want to introduce, and I'll let you take it from here, Tony, is that you, there's, there's something called UNIFIL 
the United Nations after the 2006 conflict was meant to to disarm Hezbollah and prevent the the spread of missiles in Lebanon. Um, lots of money has been spent. UNIFIL has not done its job at all. Uh, it's been totally cowed by Hezbollah. So it's been, I would say, largely useless. Maybe that's maybe that's an exaggeration. Maybe there's some utility to it. Uh, do you disagree with what, what I what I've just said, Tony? In any way, you want to add to it? I don't disagree at all. Actually, I think look, there there were two basically entities that were supposed to keep Lebanon from reaching this uh, this impasse. That's the Lebanese Armed Forces and UNIFIL. A lot of money was sunk into both uh, over the last decade and a half. And not only have they not done anything, uh, we've seen now that Hezbollah, the Hezbollah problem has become worse. So clearly, it's a failed investment by any, by any uh, measure. So therefore, the Lebanese can't really blame anyone but themselves, right? If uh, the, the United States poured hundreds of millions of dollars to uh, upgrade the Lebanese armed forces and their capabilities, they trained them. And all of it is to waste because it was never really about capability. It was that the Lebanese, the logic of the, of the political system meant that nobody is going to take on Hezbollah domestically. That's the problem. And so it's, it's really the Lebanese own, uh, it's, a, it's a problem of their own making. The UNIFIL has not been able to do anything because its mandate is predicated on cooperation with the Lebanese government and the Lebanese armed forces. It cannot do anything independently, really. It has to, it has to coordinate with the, with the LAF and with the government, and then the LAF and the government cover for Hezbollah. So, for instance, you know, last year there was a report by the United, by the United Nations about how uh, when Hezbollah dug underground tunnels from southern Lebanon into northern Israel under UNIFIL's nose, when UNIFIL tried to investigate those tunnels, the Lebanese army and the Lebanese government stalled and basically prevented them from doing their job. And this continues to this day. And the, and the rationale is that these are private premises that UNIFIL cannot enter. So it goes back to your point about where these things are stored. They're stored in civilian built-up areas. And, that, and, and obviously, since 2006, this has spread to include northeastern Lebanon and Beirut itself much more generally, as well as the south. So, and perhaps some other places that we will discover. I mean, they, they, the Hezbollah spent a lot of time, and this is where it intersects with all the financial stuff that we've been talking about. Hezbollah allied businessmen spent a lot of times during the mid 2000s buying up real estate in strategic areas in uh, the Druze, sort of at the intersection of Shiite and Druze areas and Shiite and Christian areas. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of speculation that a lot of the infrastructure that they built there has dual purpose. It's not just civilian or commercial. Uh, we will find that out in the next war, you know, because those places are, if they're going to be used, they're going to be bombed. And that's a crime against the Lebanese people, but it's in the hands of the Lebanese people to, to take action to prevent it. And money and assistance has been given to them to do so, and they did not. So, Jim, you said this is possibly beyond remedy if there's a war. I think it's absolutely beyond remedy. And again, that, that may happen. But meanwhile, planning goes on and attend their attempts in particular. Um, the IMF has come up with a plan that you described, um, and that's something that 
you should probably talk about what's feasible and, and what's not. Does the IMF have a, a route to fix what's wrong with Lebanon? So look, the IMF has done this many times. Uh, they were involved in the bailout of Greece in 2015. They did not take the lead. I, the IMF said to Europe, hey, you guys, you know, Anglo Merkel and um, European uh, monetary zone, you have to take the lead, but we'll, be, we'll follow along behind. Uh, there's an Argentinian bailout going on right now. I was doing some research uh, recently. I found that this is the, the ninth Argentinian sovereign default in the last uh, 150 years. So they're a, they're a, a serial, um, serial defaulter. So, uh, and many other examples, Ukraine recently. So these things go on all the time. Uh, and the IMF knows what they're doing. So the playbook is fairly simple. Again, step one, how big is the problem? Step two, who are the potential lenders? Well, in this case, it would be the IMF and perhaps a, a multilateral group. Step three, we want reforms. We want transparency. We want accountability. Uh, we certainly don't want to throw good money after bad. We want to make sure this doesn't happen again and so forth. And so you sort of go down the steps or legalities. And then finally, there's conditionality, which is, okay, we'll give you the money. Here's, here's the amount. But we want you know, these banks closed, this corrupt management fired. Uh, we want a new finance minister. We want a new central bank or better independence of the central bank. So the, the, the laundry list can vary, but the basic idea uh, is, is pretty straightforward. The question is when you go to Lebanon, you get off the plane, you got your playbook and said, okay, first question, how big is the problem? No straight answer. Uh, I need some transparency. I need to see the books and records. No, you can't. Who is my negotiating partner? Was well, it the finance minister of the central bank? So you really don't have anyone to negotiate with. Um, how about getting rid of the corrupt officials? Well, good luck getting rid of Hezbollah. I mean, so, so in other words, there is a playbook. It could be done, possibly, although Lebanon has, brings very, very little to the table, best case. Um, but then you just run into these roadblocks, which I described, many of which are unique to Lebanon because it's not just one corrupt regime and you got to deal with them. It's, it's many corrupt power centers in rivalry with each other and you don't even know whom to deal with initially. So could it be done? Yes. Will it be done? I'm extremely doubtful for the reasons we just listed. Look, Hezbollah is a terrorist organization. It's the, it has been so designated by the U.S., by the U.K., by the Arab League. I mean, it's, it's well known. It's also a criminal organization. It, all this is known. Is it not possible for the IMF, the U.S., which is influential in the IMF, for somebody to say, look, we're going to bail Lebanon out, but not while Hezbollah is essentially calling the shots, and we will not bail out Lebanon if that means bailing out Hezbollah. Is that really impossible to, to imagine? Well, it, it is possible, but you would, uh, you would, now you'd have to go beyond the playbook, and you'd have to basically get the U.S. and the IMF to hold hands. The U.S. is a very powerful voice inside the IMF. That's, no, that's not news, but you would need U.S. help along with IMF as a platform uh, to do a couple of things. Number one, and, and we talked about this in, in the report you mentioned, Eclipse, that we're, it's, it's one thing to sit and criticize, and it's pretty easy to criticize Lebanon, but you try to be constructive. And uh, once I realized that the playbook probably wouldn't work, I said, well, okay, how about a new playbook? How about something that is not typically done or maybe has never been done before? The, and, and that involves two things. The first step, uh, typically you go through your financial institution and say, all right, we're going to do what's called a roll-up. You know, you've got 15 banks, uh, 12 of you are not going to be around anymore, three of you are going to 
consolidate the good assets from the original 15. Those will be our flagship banks. We'll put in new management. So it's called the good bank, bad bank solution. When I say good bank, bad bank, I don't mean uh, everyone's hands are dirty. So I'm not talking about necessarily good guys, but it's just a, maybe a, a potentially solvent bank versus those that are beyond hope. That doesn't really work here because everyone's beyond hope. But what you could do is create a new bank. So instead of good bank, bad bank, think new bank. And you literally legally form a new institution. It would start with a clean, clean slate of paper, a clean sheet of paper. You would install management that you could trust. There must, there, there are some good, you know, experts and civil servants in uh, Lebanon, uh, um, perhaps from the expatriate community, uh, who, um, or the diaspora rather, who, who could serve in this capacity. You put in an oversight board, but it's an international oversight board. It's uh, so you'd have IMF officials, perhaps U.S. officials. French officials, et cetera, not tainted by the, uh, the corruption in Lebanon. So you'd have a new bank. Then the bank would, on a very highly selected basis, would turn to these insolvent banks. Okay, you've got, this looks like a pretty good loan on a you know, waterfront resort. We'll take that loan over, uh, give you a couple shares in exchange. Uh, and, and basically, it would be like a club with a very exclusive membership. And the club would, you know, would, the, the, the membership committee would sit at the door and say, you're not getting into this club unless you pass all of our tests. And that would have a lot of leverage because everybody wants to bail out. Everybody wants to survive in some capacity. But if the gatekeeper was not, uh, you know, one bad bank, you know, picking up from a slightly more bad bank, but actually a new bank, clean bank, that could perform this function with international oversight. And then the IMF says, okay, if you do that, we'll finance it and then we'll lend the central bank money. Oh, by the way, get rid of your central bank, et cetera. That might work. Now, there's something else that would need to be done. And uh, as I got deeper and deeper into the Lebanese uh, labyrinth, so to speak, um, I was uh, not, I mean, it's typical, but I was surprised to see that behind the money laundering are JP Morgan, Bank of New York Mellon, Citibank, you know, et cetera. In other words, when it goes from Hezbollah, which is terrorist and criminal, to the money changers, uh, money exchanges, so called, who are pretty much completely criminal, but they have some legitimate functions, to the commercial banks who are up to their eyeballs and et cetera. Eventually, if you move dollars, and you know this, move them anywhere in the world, I don't care where they're going, from whom to whom, it goes through a U.S. dollar system, U.S. dollar payment system maintained by the United States Treasury and the Federal Reserve. And all these Lebanese banks say, well, how do they, what do they do with their dollars? They have U.S. correspondent. If uh, a Lebanese bank wants to transfer dollars to Cyprus to the account of a um, Lebanese oligarch or whatever, that payment goes through JP Morgan or it goes through BNY Mellon or one of the major US banks who, who are the correspondent to the Lebanese bank. And those big banks, JP Morgan, I'm not picking on Morgan, there are five or six I can name City and others, they have accounts at the Federal Reserve. And they're in the, what's called Fedwire, which is the payment system. And so if you want to strangle Lebanon and strangle Hezbollah, Cut off those correspondent banking relationships as sanctions. Um, just do it. And there was an example about a year ago, a little over a year ago, of a Lebanese bank that was sanctioned, and it closed its doors within 30 days. Once they got hit with the sanctions, they were no good to anybody because they couldn't access the dollar payment system. Now you want to make change in Lebanese pounds, fine, but that's not what they were there for. They were a money laundering operation. So if you use sanctions to cut off uh, U.S. correspondence. It's like turning off the oxygen to a patient in intensive care. They're going to die. 
And that is now it would. So Hezbollah could no longer rely on its own national banking system to access the U.S. dollar payment system. Could they substitute via Iran and China and false, you know, beneficiaries on, you know, MT202s that are swift transfer messages? Probably in time, but it would be extremely difficult. And then that's just another channel where you can trap them. And you say, why hasn't this been done already? That the U.S. doesn't do these kind of sanctions willy-nilly just because they don't like you. It doesn't mean they throw on sanctions. There's a lot of intelligence collections. There's a lot of analysis. They actually get the goods on you. And then one by one, in, in a gradual way, not, not a radical way, the Treasury announces these sanctions. I don't think there'd be any difficulty at all. In fact, it probably, it's probably been done already. Getting sufficient intelligence on these Lebanese banks to make this determination. You warrant being sanctioned because, and, and we've got that information. But be careful what you wish for, because when you do it, are you marginalizing Hezbollah? Yeah, that's a good thing. But are you collapsing Lebanese society? Do you want a humanitarian crisis, a new civil war, a power vacuum that could possibly be filled by Syria or Russia? Is that what you want as the price of cutting off Hezbollah's dollar oxygen supply? That's a policy question. I'm not, I'm not necessarily in the best position to answer it. But that's how you have to frame it when you start throwing sanctions around because you're, you're going to collapse this whole thing. I've got to, really two more questions because we're getting low on time here. One is you do mention in your report that Lebanon has a surprising amount of gold that probably should come into play here. Just, just explain what you mean there. Well, they actually have physical gold and for the size of the economy, quite a bit. They're one of the 20 largest uh, they're one of the 20 largest gold reserves in the world. Um, they, the value of gold dollar price of gold fluctuates daily, but at today's market, it's worth about $16.5 billion. Uh, it's unencumbered. Uh, maybe it's leased, but leasing is not a big deal. Uh, you know, you just you lease it out and you get 1%. Return is a way to make a little money on your gold, but it doesn't mean that, you know, the, the, less, the lessee, you know, backs up the truck and takes it away. It, it's, it's in safe hands. They say, where is that gold? Uh, it's likely divided between the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, uh, the Bank of England, and perhaps the Banque de France, because because of historic relations between Lebanon and France, it, it wouldn't, wouldn't be surprised to learn that some of that's in the Banque de France. But the point is, it's in safe hands, and it has not been hypothecated the way um, the Venezuelan gold was. Uh, you know, the Libyan gold was confiscated by NATO forces. The Venezuelan gold was hawked to uh, Russia and Iran, uh, that, that gold is gone. But Lebanon's gold is intact and it's unencumbered. Now, uh, could they sell it and get $16 billion plus in hard currency as a big first step in what might be a $20 billion bailout from the IMF? Now you're talking $35 billion. Uh, that's, as Everett Dirksen might, might have said, that's, now you're talking real money. Um, the answer is it's another policy decision. Lebanon's proud of its gold. They've never done what I just described. They've never sold it. They wouldn't necessarily have to sell all of it. The other thing they could do, they could use this collateral for a hard currency loan. And assuming the loan were not wasted, it were you know, put to good purposes and the economy revived, you could pay back the loan and keep the gold. So the gold could either be sold, it could be collateral for a hard currency loan. But, but the, the difficulty with Lebanon is that well, as soon as they get their hands on the money, somebody steals it. You, you, you would not want to do any of these things I just described. 
unless you had assurance that there would be um, honest uh, experts and a good plan to put the money to good use to revive the Lebanese economy. But just to throw hard currency into Lebanon in the current state of affairs would be a waste because it would be stolen very quickly. The Islamic Republic of Iran has long been trying to develop an empire in the Middle East, and I think it, is, it, it has seen Lebanon as the most important outpost run by Hezbollah, hope to replicate that model, still does in Syria and Iraq, perhaps Yemen. But because the price of oil is low, because the U.S. has sanctioned the Iranian e economy, it can't bail out uh, Lebanon at this point, I think. Um, so that's out of the picture. France has always taken an interest in Lebanon, but it doesn't have the power to, to do that as well. Uh, I guess that leaves beyond, the, again, if, it's, if Lebanon's not going to turn to the IMF, not going to utilize its gold, not going to try to get the U.S. on board more than it already is, what does that leave? It leaves Russia. I'm not sure. Russia, I think, clearly doesn't have the economic means. I'm not sure, given what it's already established in Syria, the, the warm water port, it wants to do more than be involved in mischief. And then the last question that comes up in people's minds is, well, China is spreading an empire throughout the world. Couldn't China come in there with Belt and Road and begin to uh, utilize its resources to, to gain a measure of control? Is any of that realistic, or, uh, or am I wrong on any of these uh, analyses? No, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the, uh, going down the list of you know, who has the means, but also the interest in, in coming in. Obviously, Iran is, is number one, but they're not in a position to help at all. The Russians, you know, I'm not sure what Lebanon offers them that Syria doesn't already. And, um, uh, and also the means, you know, it's like, uh, they don't have the means to do much of what's needed. I mean, you know, the numbers that we're talking about are just absolutely huge. As for the Chinese, I mean, this is, this is the sort of the rage now everyone wants to wants to say well if you don't do that then the chinese will sweep in and, and take take it all i mean first of all it's debatable whether that's of any concern uh, but but beyond that people should remember that it's not as though the lebanese haven't tried to get the chinese to invest in their country in fact and it's not by the way it's not hezbollah who has led that effort it's what the person that America wrongfully believed was a, a partner, Saad Hariri, the former prime minister, who has been leading the charge to basically court the Chinese and get them to invest in Lebanon. Part of it, it has to do with his own financial trouble, but then he tried to then uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, sell them the uh, idea of uh, taking charge of the port of Tripoli in northern Lebanon to use it. Uh, as a you know, uh, as part of their uh, of their empire, but also as a as a gateway into Syria, so that they can help in the reconstruction of Syria. So in that sense, Hariri was pitching not only going to China, but also linking up with the Assad regime through China, and uh, that has been going on for like about four years, and the Chinese never took it; they just never took it. And so the question, you know, there's a lot of talk again coming primarily from Hariri's people about you know big projects and infrastructure and railroad and highways and electricity. And that's, you know, we'll see. I mean, I, 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 you know, the, 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 Lebanon has been dangled before China before, and China just was not interested. Uh, either way, I don't think it means we should be very careful because the Lebanese use this 
all the time to sort of hype their own importance and make their own parochial concerns a matter of global intrigue and geopolitical competition. And, and it's not. We have to maintain perspective. The idea that somehow if, we, if America doesn't sweep in and bail out Lebanon, well, we will lose it to China. Well, first of all, America doesn't have Lebanon for us to lose anyway. And second of all, it's not clear that any of this is actually real. So I think that's important to keep in mind when we're approaching the subject. Jim, I want to hear your comments on China as well. Is China a player here? Could it be a player here? Well, I guess it could be, but I don't think it will be. I kind of agree with uh, uh, Tony. China's got a pretty full plate right now. I'm not saying the place is collapsing, but uh, you know they clearly uh, lied about their uh, the COVID experience, their pandemic experience. There were far more deaths, far more uh, economic damage than they've ever admitted, and that's typical of the you know Communist Party of China. Xi has tried to position himself as the new Mao, but um, I'm not sure he's quite as ruthless, although he's pretty ruthless. You have what's called wolf warrior diplomacy based on some popular TV series, but all of a sudden, Chinese diplomats who used to keep their heads down and work behind channels are out there, you know, personally insulting Mike Pompeo. I'm not sure what what that gets you. But um, the point is, between the South China Sea, um, the Hong Kong uh, takeover, in effect, legal takeover, uh, what's going on in Taiwan, Taiwan accepting Hong Kong refugees, uh, the financial distress, uh, the shutdown of supply chains, et cetera. Uh, I think China's got a pretty full plate, and I, I don't think they, uh, I don't see what they get out of Lebanon. I mean, do they need a warm water port in the Mediterranean? They don't even have much of a Navy. Uh, so, um, uh, and it's not, you know, Lebanon's not on the way to anywhere. The South China Sea is. Uh, there are things that they want to do in uh, in uh, East Asia and the Western Pacific, but um, I, th- I don't think China's uh, as strong as they would like you to believe. I think they've got a full plate, and I can't think of one good reason why they'd want to jump into Lebanon. All right. Well, look, we don't know how the story ends, but I have to say it's it's hard to imagine how it ends well. Um, We'll talk again. Until then, I know you'll continue to follow developments and we'll want to follow up with you. So thanks again, Tony Bedran. Thanks again, James Ricards. And thanks to all of you for being with us uh, today here on Foreign Policy.